Well, uh, please take a copy of uh, your Bible and turn with me once again to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're continuing our series in 1 Peter. Uh, verses 13 through 21 uh, really are one larger section, but we're going to consider it in two parts. Uh, today, verses 13 through 17, and then, uh, Lord willing, next week, uh, verses 18 through uh, 21. Let's uh, bring ourselves up to speed uh, with what we've thought about so far and learned from this wonderful letter. Peter, in his uh, greeting, identifies Christians as elect exiles of the dispersion. And we thought about how that, that's our identity as Christians living today, a people loved and chosen by God himself, uh, living in this world as resident aliens who are committed to the values and convictions of a kingdom that is not of this world, uh, scattered uh, among the people of God, scattered throughout the world for the purpose of spreading the word of the gospel. And then as Peter gets into the body of, of his letter, he begins with the doxology, a word of praise to God the Father who has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to a living hope, to an imperishable inheritance, and to a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And coming to terms with those wonderful gospel realities enables God's people to rejoice even in the midst of grief-inducing trials, because we understand that those trials are temporary, they will not last forever, and they're purposeful. God is doing something through the trials in our lives. And then last week, we, we, we saw as well that um, along with the many privileges that we have, um, chief among them, the, the very word of God, which speaks of this salvation which we have received, it was revealed beforehand by the Spirit of Christ to the prophets, and these are the things into which angels long to look. Now, in verses 13 through 21, where we're, we're headed today, um, first section, verses 13 through 17, Peter turns his attention to how we live as exiles and recipients of so great a salvation. He's applying, in other words, the practical implications of the gospel privileges that he has been praising God for in verses 3 through 12. That's why he begins, notice in verse 13 in the ESV translation with the word, therefore. And that's an important therefore. saying, so, so in light of being born again to a living hope and receiving an imperishable inheritance and a salvation that's ready to be revealed, therefore, this is how you are to live. Ed Clowney uh, says, I think this is so helpful. He says, all of the commands of the Christian life, all of the imperatives that are given to Christians are preceded by a therefore. I think that's, that's so helpful and so important for us to understand. He's, Peter's saying, in light of the promises of God, in light of what Jesus Christ has secured for you and his life, death, and resurrection, and in light of the, the work of the Spirit in you now, therefore, this is how you are to live. And so as we unpack verses 13 through 17 today, 
We're going to be thinking about three imperatives for the Christian life or three commands for the children of God. Let me just give them to you now and we'll get to the reading of the text. The first command is to set your hope on God's grace. That's that's verse 13. The second command is to be holy in your whole life. That's verse 15. And the third command is to live in the reverent fear of God throughout the time of your exile. That's verse 17. So set your hope on God's grace, be holy in your whole life, and live in the reverent fear of God. Keep those things in mind as we turn to the reading of God's word now. And let's pick up the reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, um, verse 13. Let's hear God's word. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct." Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Well, that's stopping in the middle of a sentence that continues on for a couple more verses, but let's pause there and deal with what Peter has said so far. And we're going to get right into it this morning. Here here are three commands for those who have been called by God, born anew into the family of God. Three commands for those who call on God as Father. Okay, so, the, so we need to understand these commands in the context of a new relationship with God, where God is our Father in Jesus Christ, and we are called to be his obedient children. So command number one, first command, set your hope on God's grace. You saw that in in verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Uh, So fix your hope, Peter is saying, on the grace that is going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We thought about this earlier when Peter spoke about a living hope, a living hope that's not a dead hope because Jesus Christ is alive and he is our hope. But we recall there that uh, the Bible, when it speaks about hope, is is not talking merely about wishful desire, as we often use the term today, right? I, I hope to see you tomorrow. I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope things work out for you. You know, we, we use that kind of language all of the time, and that's fine. We just need to understand that in the world of the Bible, that's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is the assured confidence that what is hoped for will come to pass. And we can have assured confidence, not because it's wishful thinking, but because of what Jesus Christ has already accomplished, because of what he's already secured in his life, death, and resurrection. These things are guaranteed because of the work 
of Christ. And so because of what Jesus has already done, you can look forward confidently to what will be brought to you on the day of his appearance. And then filling this out a little bit more, notice Peter says we're to set our hope fully on the grace to come. Now, why do you think Peter adds that qualifier? I think it's pretty simple. It's because he understands that it's all too easy for us as Christians to misplace our hope, isn't it? To put our hope in all the wrong things. Um, to maybe, maybe at best put some hope in Jesus as a sort of fallback plan, all the while putting our, our, most of our hope in created things that ultimately will fail us. See, it's so easy to put hope in things that our society trains us to hope in. Things like success, money, career, education, um, political leaders. The psalmist, of course, says, put not your hope in princes. See, the Bible understands that we can so easily set our hope on these things, thinking that they can deliver, thinking that they can provide what it is that we are looking for. But Peter's reminding us here that the appearance of of Jesus Christ isn't just one object of the Christian hope. No, it is the object of the Christian hope. Think about it this way. Nothing else will put an end to sin. Nothing else will remove sin in the world and the sin within us. Nothing else will deal with the problem of creation being under bondage to sin and decay. Nothing else is going to get rid of of death. Nothing else is going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth and get rid of disease and sorrow and the troubles that are so common in this world. Nothing else but the appearance of our Savior Jesus Christ. Christ. And so Peter's saying, so set your hope fully on what will come to you when Jesus returns. And you notice the way Peter characterizes what's coming to you as, as grace. It, it's grace that will be brought to you. That's a kind of summary way of saying, here's you know, what's coming to you on the day of Christ appearing. Right? Seeing Jesus face to face and being like him. God dwelling in our midst. The removal of sin and decay and and death. Receiving resurrection bodies and dwelling in a world made new. It's all coming to you, Peter is saying, not by merit, not by your merit, not by a lifetime of good works. It's coming to you as the result of God's free grace to you. Now, as we think about this then, let's, let's step back now and remember the context of 1 Peter. Peter is writing to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, who are, in Peter's words, grieved by various trials. We thought about the nature of those trials a few weeks back, trials that uh, resulted from their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're suffering for the sake of the gospel. So what does Peter have to say to them? He says, set your hope on God's grace. It will not fail you. In other words, while present circumstances may be downright miserable, 
while life might be hard right now, while you may be called to suffer now for a little while, while, in the words of the psalmist, darkness may seem to be your closest companion, do this. Put your hope in God and the certainty of his grace that is coming to you when Jesus appears. See, Peter's reminding them, and God's reminding us today, dear friends, that this life isn't, isn't everything. You are not living your best life now. If you are a Christian, you are not living your best life now. The best is yet to come. So fix your hope on God's grace and press on. Uh, You might be thinking, okay, I I get the, the gist of the command to set my hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed when Jesus appears. How, How exactly do I do that? Maybe it, maybe it seems like a somewhat abstract command. Does Peter offer us any help in terms of how do we do this? How do we set our hope fully on God's grace? I actually think he gives us a great deal of help at the beginning of verse 13. If you go back and look at what he says there, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Just stop there. Okay, so, so setting your hope fully on God's grace begins with, Preparing your minds for action. Now, literally in Greek, what Peter actually says is by the girding up the loins of your mind. That's a strange picture, isn't it? What's, what's the significance of that word picture? Now, picture is somebody in the ancient world you know, who would have been wearing long robes. And if they were going to prepare for action, if they needed to get move, moving quickly, what do they need to do? They need to roll up their, their robes in their belt, gird up their loins so that they could get moving. I think maybe a, a contemporary idiom today would be something like um, preparing your minds for action. In, in other words, rolling up the sleeves of your mind, right? You roll up your sleeves when you're ready to get to work. I interned at a PCA church in Maryland for a summer, uh, for a, summer a number of years ago, and uh, the pastor there, he, he'd grown up in a, in, a, in a Baptist church, and it was, I think it left a mark on him, and uh, every time he, so during the, during the service, his sleeves were, were down, and when he stood up to preach, he rolled up his sleeves, <laughs> and it was always a signal, I think, okay, Pastor Russ, he's, he's ready to get to work here, but that's, that's the picture that, that Peter is using, I think, you, you roll up your sleeves, you gird up the loins of your mind. And, his, and his, his, uh, his point to us here is that we don't set our hope on future grace in a state of passivity. And we, don't, we don't set our hope on future grace by resting on our laurels. It involves a mental resolve to, to live in such a way that manifests in our lives an assurance of things hoped for, yes, even in the face of trials. And I think Peter helps us even more, because you noticed I didn't read the whole way through. He, he goes on, he elaborates on what it will mean to gird up the loins of our mind. He says it will mean being sober-minded, or closely associated with that, the idea of being self-controlled. So with our, with our intellectual life in view, with the, the, the life of the mind in view, 
God calls us to sober-mindedness, which in Scripture is closely connected to our actions. In other words, what we are thinking or what we're not thinking is closely related and connected to what we do in our lives. Now, sometimes Peter's words here are reduced to, when he uses the language of being sober-minded, folks will reduce it to Peter saying, you know, don't get get drunk. Now, certainly, what Peter's saying extends to that, especially in a culture where people without hope maybe seek refuge in, in drunkenness to drown out their sorrows. But what Peter is saying here is far more expansive than that. I think what he's really getting at is he wants us to avoid any form of, we could say, mental or spiritual moral intoxication that would blur blur the reality of who we are by the grace of God and as a result would deflect us from living with our hope fully fixed on the grace of Christ. See, Let's, let's pause there and, and, I, and reflect on what Peter's teaching us here because I think he's making such a helpful and profound point for the Christian life. Because, think of it this way, it is so easy, isn't it, to live thoughtlessly. It, it is so easy to go through our days mindlessly, to be driven merely by desire Uh, impulses, feelings, um, unchecked passions. And Peter talks about this in the very next verse, in verse 14, as part of actually what marked our former lives before God in his grace called us to be his children. He says, we lived lives driven by passions, by desires, and You know, the world will make that kind of life seem cool and fun and satisfying, but please note how Peter, the apostle, characterizes it. He calls it a life of ignorance, a a life driven purely by passions. He means by that unrestrained impulses, right? Living for whatever you want and setting your hope on those things as the source of your satisfaction Peter wants us to understand that is a tragic, tragic way to live. I think his teaching, therefore, is just so important, particularly in our cultural moment. Isn't it true that on the one hand, we live in a culture that wants to lull us into a stupor with constant entertainment and distraction? And then on the other hand, tells us, in thousands of ways, that the only way for you and me to be happy is to fulfill our desires. You see, in a society like this, I think it's so easy, it's a constant temptation to stop conforming our lives to what we, by God's grace, now know is real and true and good and worthy of our affection and our lives. Instead, just live for whatever will make us happy in the moment or the foreseeable future. And so instead of exercising self-control and fully setting our hope on future grace, we can so easily mindlessly set our hope merely on satisfying unchecked desires. Peter reminds us if we're Christian, if we're Christians, that by God's grace... (laughs) 
That's a mark of our former ignorance. In other words, Peter is saying, it's not who you are anymore. It marks your former life before God called you and made you a new creation created in Christ Jesus. And so what Peter's really doing here is he's saying, be who you are, children of God. You are no longer slaves to futility, but you are children of the King. So set your hope fully on the grace that's coming to you. And do not live uh, mindless lives driven by sinful impulses. And so brothers and sisters, God is, God is saying live each day with the final outcome of this world and your life in view. Set your hope fully on the grace of God. And that is going to mean you're going to need to roll up the sleeves of your mind and learn to think soberly, and to live a self-controlled life in the light of what's real, in the light of what's true and good and worthy of our lives. That's the first command. Set your hope on God's grace. Second command follows right on the tails of it. Uh, Live holy lives. Let your whole life be holy is really the command here. Take a look again. Pick it up in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but, okay, so, so here's the alternative. Instead of former passions, here's the alternative that is now possible because of God's grace. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I Am holy. The heart of the command is be holy, be devoted to God in your whole entire life. Notice this command, as I've tried to emphasize throughout, is grounded in our new relationship with God as Father. Do you notice how that peppers the text? As obedient children, verse 17, as those who call on God. As Father, He is our Father because He has called us and caused us to be born anew through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And now, therefore, we are to live as His obedient children. And so, like the Father is holy, we are, called, we are being called here to bear the family likeness. And so, His children are called to be holy. We need to understand this, that Peter is really pressing the point that the reality of the new birth in the Christian life necessarily leads to a decisively altered way of life. And so 1 Peter, I want you to notice the pattern of what, if you can put all of the passages that we've covered together so far, maybe borrow from what's to come. Notice this pattern in 1 Peter. This is how God saves his people. He calls them. He names them his sons, his sons and daughters. He redeems them by the shedding of blood. And then he calls them to a life of consecration. He calls them to identify with him by conforming their lives to his divine character. That's a pattern we see here in 1 Peter, 
But it's a pattern that is pictured for us, of course, earlier in the Old Testament. Isn't that exactly what God in his grace did with Israel? When they called upon him in their helpless estate in Egypt, in bondage to slavery, the Lord heard them and he called them out of Egypt. He redeemed them by the blood of the Passover lamb and then he brought them into his presence at Mount Sinai, giving them the Ten Commandments and saying to them, this now is how you are to live. Not to earn salvation, but as the recipients of salvation and fellowship with me, this is the life that you are called to. As you work out your salvation in Pauline terms. And so you see Peter, once again, is relying upon the Old Testament to help us understand the nature of the Christian life. Something else we have to come to terms with is that this call to holiness, it extends to the whole of our lives. In Peter's terms, in all your conduct. Because once again, I think Peter the pastor understands that it's tempting for us to think that we can sector off parts of our lives. And say, this, this part of my life is devoted to the Lord, and the rest of it is secular. Right? It really has nothing to do with my relationship to the Lord. Peter wants us to understand that's not the nature of this summons to holiness. This call is comprehensive. It relates to your public life. It lays claim to your private life, to your domestic life, to your religious life, to your work life, to your family life. Sunday and the rest of the week, this call to holiness is comprehensive. And and notice as well that this, this New Testament call to holiness is grounded explicitly in an Old Testament command that is found in the book of Leviticus. Of all books, in the book of Leviticus. Okay, Leviticus actually says at least four times something like, you shall be holy for I am holy, the Lord being the speaker. But on this occasion, Peter is actually quoting word for word from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, from the Greek Greek Septuagint translation of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. You shall be holy for I am holy says the Lord. In other words, Christians, be holy because God says to his people, his covenant people, Jews and Gentiles, be holy for I am holy. See, Peter assumes that the Old Testament is authoritative and normative for Christians living today, regardless of ethnic origin. There's no distinction here made between Jew and Gentile. Now, if you're sensitive to the nature of some of the laws found in the law of Moses, in particular in the book of Leviticus, you might be wondering, well, how, what does that mean in terms of the ritual, ceremonial, cleanliness laws in the book of Leviticus? I think it's important for us to understand, of course, that Peter's not imposing on new covenant Christians the ritual, purity, and civil laws that are found in Leviticus. It was actually Peter, after all, who was it Acts chapter 10 had that vision of, of the animals that were considered unclean and he heard the words, Peter, kill and eat. It was Peter who was, who was coming to terms with the fact that certain aspects of the Levitical uh, requirements are no longer binding on believers today as they were 
for believers in the Old Covenant. That being said, the call to holiness abides because God's purposes have always been to to call and to save and to create a people who are being conformed to his own character so that they would reflect him in the world, bearing his image. But there's one other important reason I think Peter relies upon the the book of Leviticus, and that's because it illustrates the point I was trying to make a a minute ago that the call to holiness extends to all of life to all of our conduct. Just think about the book of Leviticus as a whole, how it prescribes certain religious rituals, which really was intended to set apart the worship of Israel from that of the nations surrounding them. And the worship of God's people would be distinct from the pagan worship of the surrounding peoples. And then you go on in the following chapters And you have what's called often the holiness code in chapters 11 through 20 laws regulating uh, what could be what what could be consumed uh, laws about clean and unclean things purification rights uh, regulations for skin diseases uh, bodily discharges uh, unlawful sexuality all of these sorts of things and more and and you're left with the distinct impression in the book of Leviticus that the call to be holy as God is holy really does extend to our entire lives, to our religious, domestic, and we could say neighborly existence. And so while the the ritual and civil laws are, are not binding on us today the way that they were on Old Testament believers, Peter, I'm convinced, is deliberately grounding this call to holiness in Leviticus to establish, first of all, the abiding principle that God's people in every place and every age are called to be holy as God is holy, and secondly, to help us understand that this call to holiness extends to your whole life, or in Peter's words, in all your conduct. So I wonder, dear friends, as we think about this today, do do we take this command seriously? That's a question I want us to think about for a moment. Do we take the command of God to be holy as he is holy seriously in our lives? A number of years ago, a pastor in our denomination wrote a really helpful little book called The Hole in Our Holiness. I wonder, dear friends, is there a hole in our holiness? Do we need to, with renewed vigor, take seriously the summons to pursue holiness in our lives because the God who has called us and has saved us is himself holy? And keep in mind here that the motive, the motive here is not to work for salvation. Peter's already made that clear, that the motive is the gospel itself because God has called us and caused us to be born again. He has named us as his children. And so now we seek in all of our lives to be what we are, the children of God. 
So that's the second command, be holy in your whole life. Let's, let's go to the third one here very, very quickly. Okay, set your hope on God's grace, command number one, be holy in your whole life. That's number two. And then number three, live in reverent fear of God throughout the time of your exile. Uh, I think it's safe to say we, we don't talk much about the fear of the Lord today. And that's unfortunate because in Scripture, it's one of the chief motives for living the Christian life. And so what Peter's really trying to do here is help us in the area of motives in the Christian life. So notice in verse 17 that God who is our Father, who has adopted us, is also spoken of as an impartial judge. See that in in verse 17? He judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now that's that's a sobering thought, isn't it? that he judges according to our deeds. It's, it's a reality that people often don't want to acknowledge, but, but dear brothers and sisters, it's one we, we need to face. You and I, yes, you and I will stand before the Lord one day, the day of judgment, and we are not exempt from a judgment according to works. Now, you might be saying in your mind at least, Thank you for not saying it out loud. Hold on. Hold on, Pastor Jared. Didn't Peter just say back in verse 13 that when the day dawns, Christ appearing, it's all going to be grace, right? The grace that is brought to us when Jesus Christ comes back. And and now you're you're saying that when we stand before God in judgment, it's going to be according to deeds? How do we put those two things together? It can't be both, right? It can't be all grace and then according to to works, or can it? I think it's a really important question, and I think it's one we've all often struggled with to try to make sense of. I want to suggest to you that Peter really helps us answer it. If you have a look further on in verse 18, it is abundantly clear that our sin is paid for in full. So take a look. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter's saying we, are, we, we have been ransomed. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of the spotless lamb of God, the Lord Jesus himself. And so Peter's reminding us there, if you trust in Christ, your sin is, is paid for. You have been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb. There is now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. It is finished. The debt was paid in full and your guilt has been removed. And we need to understand there can be no double jeopardy in the heavenly tribunal. God is not going to judge you for sins that he has already judged Jesus for on Calvary's cross. And so when you stand before God on the last day, there's no question of your sin being counted against you because your sin was already counted against the Lord Jesus himself, who, as Isaiah says, was crushed for our iniquities. So then what does it mean for us as Christians, those who name the name of Jesus Christ, the name above every name, what does it mean for us to be judged according 
to our deeds. We need to say we will not be judged according to our sin, but we will be judged according to our works. So here's what I think Scripture is saying. When the last day of, comes, when the last judgment occurs, and we stand before the judgment seat, not the sins of Christians, not your sins, Christians, but your works will be counted. Not as the grounds upon which God accepts you and welcomes you into his kingdom, but rather as the evidence that his grace has indeed accomplished its purposes. That his work in you has not failed, that his promises are true, that his righteousness is vindicated and his work for you and his work in you has been accomplished. You see, dear brothers and sisters, we will not be judged um, for our sins. We will be judged according to works, with our works evidencing God's work in us in making us new creations, created in Christ Jesus for what? Remember what Paul says? For good works. Here's how a 17th century theologian puts it. I, I found this so helpful in trying to make sense of this. He said, I will not sin because my father is my judge. But for my frailties, when I do stumble and when I do sin, when I fall, I will hope for mercy because my judge is also my father. Isn't that wonderful? He's summing it up. This verse is teaching us to say, because he's the holy judge, I tremble at the very thought of transgressing his law because I am loved by him and because I have come to love him. And I'm in awe of his his majesty and his greatness, and I shrink back from the very thought of betraying his love to me in Jesus Christ. I will not sin. I will not sin because my father is my judge, but for my frailties when I do sin. I don't fall into despair, but I trust in his mercy because my judge is also my merciful father in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's Peter's point. I think it captures it so well here in verse 17. Therefore, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's not talking about spiritual uncertainty. He's not talking about abject terror. He's not talking about, frankly, the servile fear that one ought to experience if he is or she is not trusting in Christ. If, you, if you're here today and your trust is not in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, then frankly, what we're speaking about this morning ought to alarm you because it's reminding you that each one of us are going to stand before the Lord one day and to give an account. God is just and holy, and you will stand before him on the last day. And unless you find in Jesus a Savior and a rescuer from your sin and guilt, you will stand exposed to the justice of God. But you see, the fear in the heart of the children of God, Peter's teaching us, it's not a slavish fear. It's not a servile fear. It's not terror of judgment. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. But there is a reverent fear that should fill our hearts at the very thought 
of betraying the God who loves us. And it's a fear that ought to motivate us to live a certain way as the children of God. And so as I asked with holiness, I just want to ask us as we come to wrap things up here, does the fear of God have a place in your life? Really, when you, when you think through your daily life, you're thinking what you say, what you do, does the fear of the Lord register at, at all in your life? Do you fear God or in those moments when perhaps God's revealed will for you and your will, your desire do not line up, do you functionally say in your heart, there is no God? I know we're, we're uncomfortable today even talking about the fear of God, I think if we're honest with ourselves. But the Bible speaks often about it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Scripture says. The fear of the Lord leads us to say, I, I will delight in the Lord's commandments. I will, I will walk in his ways. And I will fight tooth and nail against my sin because my father is my judge, and when I do sin, I will trust in his mercy because my judge is also my father, a merciful father in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are three imperatives here for living the Christian life. Set your hope on God's grace, the fullness of God's grace that will come to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So gird up the loins of your minds and live Sober, self-controlled lives with your hope fully set on the appearance of Jesus Christ. Be holy in your whole life for the God who has called you to be his child is holy. And thirdly and, and finally, live life in reverent fear of God throughout the time of your exile. For the God who is your father is also an impartial judge. But remember that when you do stumble and sin, that this impartial judge is also your loving, merciful Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you please join me in prayer? Let's pray. God, we thank you for calling us to be your children, and we pray that by your Spirit and through the grace of Christ that we would live as obedient children and put into practice these commands. Relying on your grace, help us to set our hope on what's coming to us on the day of Christ's appearing. Help us to be holy in all of our lives, in public and in private, and help us to live in a proper fear of you as our loving Father and the judge of all the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.